Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm Lori Flores, the host of this podcast episode, and today I'm talking with Carl Jacoby, the author of The Strange Career of William Ellis, The Texas Slave Who Became a Mexican Millionaire, and it's out of Norton in 2016, coming debuting on Juneteenth. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. Um, so it's very exciting to be able to talk with him today. How's it going, Carl? Great. Really excited to be here. Thank you. Thanks for being here with me. We are in Carl's majestic office <laughs> at Columbia University. Um, so first of all, before we talk about the book, Carl, do you want to tell us a little bit about how um, you got to Columbia and this point in your career? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Where were you before before now? Sure. I I think people, when they find out, I grew up mainly in Massachusetts, and when I tell people that I grew up mainly in Massachusetts, people are usually surprised that I'm so interested in borderlands history. But there is a, a rational story behind it, which is to say that my, um, my, my family is actually from New York, my mom's family. My grandfather was, uh, did construction here and was from Queens, did construction here in New York, uh, laid like floors for bowling alleys and roller rinks and stuff. And he was a heavy smoker. And so at some point he was having a lot of lung problems. And his doctor said, you know, you've got to move uh, from New York to a drier climate. And so the original place he was thinking of moving was Arizona. And this would have been 50s, 60s. And then he finally decided, well, actually, uh, I can get so much more for my money if I go across the border into Sonora. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up settling in a small town in uh, southern Sonora outside of uh, Navajoa. And uh, so as a kid, what I used to do every year, um, I would usually go down with my mom and we, uh, we had a bunch of cousins living in Phoenix. Uh, and so we'd go visit our cousins in Phoenix and then we'd usually drive or take the train across the border into, uh, into Sonora. And I'd spend a couple weeks there and I'd even, I even went to school in, in, uh, in, in Sonora for a couple of weeks and then I come back to Massachusetts. So it, it means that I spent a lot of time crossing the border and was always very interested in what does this mean? It's such a um, extraordinary thing to cross the border. It just mm-hmm. is such a, it's such an odd quirky experience. And uh, how old were you at the time? So, you know, from when I was actually like two or three up until oh, wow. when I started to go to high school, then I got very hard to, because my mom would take me out of school for a couple of weeks and mm. then that got hard. And so mm-hmm. uh, probably up through early junior high or so that I did this. So I speak as a result, I speak a kind of mangled Spanish from having been there and speaking a lot of Spanish and coming back and not speaking a lot of Spanish when I was in Massachusetts. Uh, and so that's what got me very interested in borders and just trying to understand what this experience was. Uh, something that seems you can just go a few inches and before you know it, you're a whole new country, new language, new, new currency. Even the measurements are different because in you know, Mexico, everything's measured in kilometers. That's right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I went to, I was an undergrad at Brown University, 
which was a great experience, but they had very li- limited stuff on borderlands or even Latin American history at that point. And I ended up uh, not going into the academy right away. I ended up actually coming to New York and working in New York in publishing for about four or five years. And I think you can see I'm very interested in questions about storytelling and narrative and history. And I think that's a residue from my publishing days. Um, and then gradually uh, I decided I, I wanted to write my own books. So rather than when publishing, you're always helping someone else write their books. And I felt that actually I wanted to uh, try to write my books. And I ended up, I was lucky enough to get into uh, to Yale, uh, which had the time sort of the big Western history program. And uh, the funny thing I think about my experiences at Yale, at the time people, I was very interested in, even then, Borderlands history, but I said, well, Borderlands is a kind of weird thing. I don't know if that's a professionally wise <laughs> decision to do. What year was this? So this would have been in the, I graduated in 97. So, you know, 97. Mid, yeah, mid-90s. How the tables have turned. Oh, exactly. Now, exactly. now everyone wants to do Borderlands. So my first book, there is actually a chapter in it on, or two chapters in it on Arizona, which is a sort of a toehold in Borderlands history, although lots of people don't think about my first book as a Borderlands book. And then the next book, Shadows at Dawn, is pretty clearly a Borderlands book. At least it's set in the Tucson area, a place that goes from being part of Sonora to being part of uh, Arizona. And then this project here, The Strange Curve of Ellis, is the one that I think is most fully, uh, so it's taken me three books to get there, but most fully in the uh, Borderlands sort of genre. So it's very much drawn from uh, archives on both sides of the border. Uh, and trying to, in a small way, intervene in historiographies on both sides of the border as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a fascinating book. I just got done reading it last night and absolutely loved it. You're a great storyteller, and it's because you found a really interesting subject. I mean, it's pretty amazing the kinds of documents and the kinds of paths you were able to trace of this man who engaged in racial passing and crossing the U.S.-Mexico border constantly. So tell us how you came to the story of William Ellis. How did you find this guy? So it's a, it's a very long story. When people ask me how long I've been working on the book, I never know exactly what to say because I actually first discovered some references to him when I was in graduate school. So again, that would be in the 90s, which is, if I do the math, it's embarrassing. That's like 20 years ago now. (laughs) I can't believe it, but it is. Uh, And the tricky part then is uh, there were some references in State Department records to this uh, episode in 1895 that we'll probably talk about when all of these African-American sharecroppers tried to settle in uh, Durango and Coahuila. And I, and the interesting thing for me was who is behind this really unprecedented migration from North to South. And it turned out they were making references to this character named William Ellis, but it was very hard at the time to figure out who was he. Uh, and, and so I, what I did is I ended up writing other projects and I had this folder where I, whenever I could find something, I would stick it in this folder and think there's something interesting here. I, I just don't know how to get to it. And so I think really what changed it for me, what made the book possible was actually the massive uh, digitization of archives because once all the uh, census data and everything else was digitized and it could actually track some of his family members and locate family members and interview them. And also uh, a lot of newspapers were digitized because he pops up in a lot of newspapers, but not in the systematic way that you could ever 
just look through reels and reels of microfilm or pages of, of newspapers and never find them. And so being able to go to a, a massive newspaper database and just sticking in his name and pseudonyms, uh, then I could pop up a lot of references to him. But really the, the first part, which was tracking down the family, was the key to the whole project because I, I knew that in, he's sort of, it's a, it's a game of shadows. I mean, there's just a lot of controversies uh, not controversial, uh, contradictory stories about him floating around. It's like, well, I, I can't really, I can't get to the bottom of this unless I'm able to talk to people who actually knew him or have new stories about him. And so gradually I was able to track down uh, his grand nieces who actually live in Southern California. And the great irony is when earlier when I was working on this project, I was actually doing it at the Huntington, some of it at the Huntington Library, or as a fellow one year. And when I finally tracked down the relatives, which was several years later, I found out they live in Altadena and Pasadena and South Pasadena. It's all right. Yeah, right there. Right close to the library. In fact, one of them, the one uh, I think in Altadena, lived just a few few blocks from a friend of ours and literally driven by our house. Oh, my gosh. Without knowing that if I just stopped there two blocks away and knock on the door that I would have. All of these mysteries would have been solved. (laughs) That folder in your computer. (laughs) Years and years ahead of time. Oh my gosh. So it's funny because, you know, like most people, I'm somewhat ambivalent about the whole sort of digital revolution. But in my case, I think this book would not have been possible without it because basically he's someone who's trying to hide all the, all his tracks. You know, there's certain figures, you know, George Washington, people consciously create an archive around them. He's someone who's consciously trying to not create an archive around himself. And so the real challenge here was, trying to find sufficient documentation that you could tell a fully uh, sort of three-dimensional story about it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because even though he's trying to cover his tracks, he wants to be known as a great man, which is like the contradiction that I saw running throughout the whole story. It's, it's like, he wants to, he keeps on saying things through, or you document him saying things throughout the book. Like, you will know me as a great man. I will be a success. I will get to where I want to go. So if he didn't want to be so prominent, maybe he could have hidden himself a whole lot better, but because he wanted to be such a success in both Mexico and the United States, that's how you can find him, right? He's always popping up. Yeah. I think that's one of the big ironies around his passing, which on one level he had to do because in the face of you know, the, the white supremacy and the Jim Crow racism at the time, how else was he able to realize his ambitions except by he's someone who was born as a, as a slave, African-American, enslaved African-American, but is able to persuade people that he's a, a very wealthy Mexican from Mexico City. And so on one level, it allows him to achieve his ambitions, but the more better known and more famous he becomes as, as a result of this, then the more risk there is that he'll actually be discovered. Totally. Uh, and I, the thing that I think that's really interesting about that, though, is that and is that he's so clever about it that in several cases, people who, even though they're presented with sort of abundant evidence that he's not who he seems to be, they are really unwilling to admit that they were tricked and they really want him to be who they think he is. And so they're very, very resistant in several cases to actually um, acknowledging the the truth about his background. Mm-hmm. So in an odd way, they end up sort of helping to uh, continue his, his charades. Yeah. It totally perpetuates it yeah. because the yeah. language, even if they're trying to call him out in the end, I mean, towards later in his life, they're kind you know, the press is kind of 
hinting that this guy is not who he presented himself to be, but the language is still very delicate right. around the unveiling of what right. he actually right. succeeded in tricking people at. Right. Right. So let's go back to the beginning. So okay. you said it, he starts life, you know, in an enslaved condition. Mm -hmm. The story starts in Kentucky. Right. Um, and then the prologue of your book, you know, brings us up to the year before the Mexican revolution. There's mm -hmm. this episode on a, on a train that I want to talk about. So start the story in Kentucky because that's where, you know, his family origins right. in enslaved origins sort of right. start. So he's, his, uh, William Ellis himself is born in, Texas. Right. Uh, but it's really impossible to understand it without this Kentucky story uh, that, in fact, I actually went down to, uh, it's born in Victoria, Texas. And I actually went there and I walked around uh, the, the lands where he would have been born and, and grew up. And uh, that's, you know, it's all really part of the whole cotton boom, which is to say in Kentucky, you can't grow cotton very reliably. So all of these, um, slave owners from the upper South end up moving in the 1850s down to Texas where they can grow cotton. And it's an interesting thought exercise. I don't get into it too much in the book, but you can imagine what the sort of shape of slavery would have looked like if the civil war hadn't come quite when it did, because the whole, there's this sort of so-called second um, migration, the second sort of middle passage, which is from the upper South, which is a sort of where, slaves originally were brought uh, as a result of the, the slave trade. And then several generations later, there's this huge migration south uh, chasing the cotton plant, basically. And so that's what uh, brings his family south. But I also wanted to discuss the fact that there's just this tremendous rupturing of family relations. I mean, it starts in a moment of rupture, I think, because there's first this rupture of this uh, victorious, you know, basically conquered and taken from from Mexico, but also um, all these people uh, are taken out of Kentucky. Uh, and so I don't, I'm able to get a few hints about what his family relations would have been like in Kentucky, but it's really, that's one of the points where it gets very, very hard to figure out what was happening there. And in lots of cases, these people would either sometimes take steamboats a little bit, but a lot of the enslaved African-Americans walked almost all this way, which is like a thousand miles oh my gosh. down to, wow. uh, down to, uh, down to Victoria or other places. And they start, uh, turning what had been Mexican cattle ranches into, uh, cotton plantations. Wow. And Victoria is along the coast. Yes. It's in just a little bit from Corpus Christi. Where I'm from um, yeah. sort of around there. Yeah. And I think it's, is it Port Lavaca? Mm -hmm, is, is mm -hmm, around there. Mm -hmm. So, and it's just South of a little bit South of Houston and San Antonio. Uh huh. Yeah. So good cotton climate. Good cotton climate, uh, and it's it's also good ranching land. So it's a kind of interesting mm -hmm. place where some of the Mexican families end up growing cotton, and a few Mexican families even own slaves. And then some of the uh, some of the, the incoming Anglo slave owning families, like the family that had Uncle um, Mellis and his, his the rest of his family members, they end up sort of doing this where they have a hybrid sort of ranch cotton plantation. So I see it as what's really interesting about Victoria, which I think makes sense in William Ellis's life. Cause at first I didn't, I was wondering where could this guy be from? But then I realized he has to be from Texas because how else would an African American have uh, learned Spanish and be so comfortable with Mexican culture. But if you grew up in a community with a lot of other uh, Tejanos, mm -hmm. uh, that would be a good setting for that. 
Um, but also Victoria makes a perfect sense because in a lot of uh, antebellum Texas, uh, the, the, the slave owners actually would run out Tejanos. As you probably know, they would run them out from the communities because they were worried that they would help uh, enslaved African-Americans escape to Mexico or they might foment uh, slave rebellions. But in uh, Victoria, this really wasn't possible because a lot of the main landowners were uh, Tejanos, and so they couldn't really run out the landowning class, the sort of property people. And so uh, it's one of the few places where you actually have in the antebellum period significant numbers of Tejanos, African-Americans, and uh, Anglo-Americans living in mm-hmm. close proximity to one another. There's a lot of East Texas, farther east, where there is a lot of slavery, a lot of those areas are pretty much strictly white and black with no, no Tejanos at all. Right. So William Ellis um, grows up in this, you know, Neil Foley talked about this too, this kind of triracial um, society right. in, in Texas, cotton growing Texas, right? right? And it, I found it so interesting that as a teenager, you know, he's growing up in this multilingual, multicultural society he gets involved in politics, right. which is super interesting. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the politicians he was able to get connected with at such a young age? Sure. I mean, I think he's really, he comes of age at this tremendous moment of intellectual ferment, which is, or political ferment, because he, you know, he's, he's a pretty young man when emancipation comes. So he's growing up and, and during Reconstruction and the aftermath of Reconstruction. And the big question there is African-American political participation. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so he's able to, he's able, I think, both to glimpse the possibility and to participate in some of this African-American uh, political mobilization. And then ultimately, I think one reason that he becomes more and more interested in Mexico is he becomes more and more disenchanted with what the possibilities are in the United States for um, African-Americans to really have a real sort of lasting freedom to have um true political power and also economic power access to land, which again is, is very hard for African-Americans in Texas. So the figures that he gets involved with, what really I found fascinating about it too, and which I think reveals a lot about his character, is that on the face of it, there are sort of the, the two opposite poles of what was going on during African-American politics during this time. So one of these people would be Norris Wright Cuny, who was the, um, for a long time, was the head of the Republican Party in Texas. This is one of the most, this is the most powerful position that an African-American held in um, American politics in the, in the sort of political, in the political system, not as a, as an elected politician, but within the sort of, uh, you know, the, the party system uh, in, in the 19th century. So he's head of the whole system in Texas. And he's in some ways is the ultimate insider. I mean, he works with, he gets his start organizing dock workers in Galveston and he's very much uh, trying to uh, turn the Republican Party into a vehicle for black uh, political advancement and economic advancement there. And so that's sort of one vision of what is the route, possible route could be for African-Americans. But he also gets involved with, uh, not long after, with uh, Bishop Turner, who is a, um, in some ways seen as one of the first sort of black nationalists, uh, so that he's very much interested in the colonization movement and the idea of leaving the United States. And he sees particularly Liberia as a place where African-Americans could go, they could have their own country, they could be free of white racism, and um, they could then demonstrate to the world what, what
what African-Americans could achieve once they're free of racism. And they would also, in a way, benefit Africa. There's a sort of, a certain sort of, I don't know, messianic aspect to uh, what, what Turner's thinking. And so uh, Ellis is also involved with that, which is very interesting because CUNY will come, come right out and says, like, I, don't not, I don't approve of colonization. I think that people should be here. The battle for African-Americans is here in the United States. And the rather interesting sort of alternative path that William Ellis takes, which is really truly his own, is that in many ways he's trying to get the political power and economic power that, um, that CUNY is going for as well. But also he decides that it's probably going to be very difficult to achieve in the United States. But he's not particularly interested in going to Liberia, going to Africa. He sees Mexico as the alternative. And he says Mexico is more developed uh, you know, under the Porfirio Diaz it's, it's, has this whole rhetoric of modernization. Uh, there's land. There's a lot of northern Mexico. They desperately want people to settle that land. Uh, and it's much closer. It's not you know, one of the things that's always derailed colonization plans is, frankly, the expense of getting people to these new lands. So that makes colonization in Africa incredibly difficult and expensive. But uh, Mexico is much, much closer. And so he's, he's really taking bits and pieces of all these um, different political thinkers and creating this new political thought that's really all his own. Mm. And so fast forward, you know, a few years, he's grown man. He, you know, you start the book with this really mm-hmm. fascinating prologue in which he's on a train. He's mm-hmm. going, he's taking the Aztec limited to New York, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's 1909 and a really interesting period in Mexican history before the revolution. And so what happens to him on this train? Yeah. So on this train, he, he's crossing the border. He's coming from Mexico, from Mexico up to, uh, he's going to New York ultimately. And he passes the border in Eagle Pass, Piedras Negras. Uh, and so the question becomes, as soon as you cross the border, now he had been in the Pullman first class car and you could do that in Mexico. There's no segregation. In Mexico, um, if you can afford a first-class ticket, you go in the first-class car. He once he crosses into Texas, all of a sudden the question becomes, hmm, what race is he? Because in Texas, of course, there is, you know, segregation everywhere. There's segregation in graveyards. There's segregation in restaurants and hotels, and there's segregation on the railroads. And so there's this big question. And what I liked about that particular vignette. Uh, which did happen all the time. Often you did take the train a lot of times, but at this particular moment where um, it seems that people had heard some rumors about him and begin to question his racial status is that it really shows that the, the two things that I think really intersect here, which is the history of the color line and the history of the borderline. And the two of these are in some ways, uh, we, we tend to have studied them as fairly separate, but I think here you can see that they're very much intertwined. And I'd say that's one of the sort of big, picture things that I'm trying to do in the book, which is to say that I think one of the groups that in retrospect, it's really surprising to me that have been left out of African, Afri- I'm sorry, out of borderlands history. It really is African-American. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, there's a lot of great work on the Chinese. There's a lot of great work on um, native natives along the border. And obviously along among ethnic Mexicans along the border, but uh, African-Americans have really been absent. And it's, it's really startling because, when you think about what was going on in much of the 19th century, you know, slavery along the border, questions of U.S. expansion into Mexico were so um, predominated U.S.-Mexican relations. 
And so what ends up happening to him in this train car? So, so this, they, they switch staff. Do they switch um, conductors and I, I ticket know. takers? I wish and, I knew that exactly. I yeah. don't know exactly. I, I believe, and my understanding is, and this is one of the things that was, your, your, your question was great because it's 1909. Yeah. So we know, I mean, he didn't know, but we know. Right. We know something is coming. That the Mexican Revolution is coming. And one of the things actually was that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the jobs were reserved for Anglo so that on the train system, for instance, most of the conductors and everything were, were white. Mm. Uh, the porters actually were African-Americans. So when I was doing research on African-Americans in Mexico City, uh, most of the ones that I could locate in Mexico City were Pullman porters who lived around some of the train stations there. Mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, at this particular moment, and this, I think this goes back to your earlier question about the fact that he's both passing both obscure some of his history, but by making him more prominent than it sometimes people begin to notice him and, and question him in a way they might not have otherwise. There, there have been these rumors around him and people, uh, he says, no, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Mexican. I, I shouldn't be subjected to, uh, having to move to the Jim Crow car. Uh, and finally what they end up doing is getting the local sheriff. And once he, they get the local sheriff, he decides discretion is the better part of ballot. He does move to the Jim Crow car, but he makes this very loud accusation that he's going to sue the railroad company for hundreds of thousands of dollars for making him do this, which I think is an interesting way that when he's passing, he's both passing um, a, a, a color line, you know, he's passing it from African-American to being uh, Mexican. He's also passing to a certain extent, a uh, a class line, which is he's you know, sort of presenting himself not as any Mexican, as a Mexican peon or campesino, but instead as a uh, you know an upper class Mexican who's you know member of the sort of Porfirian uh, inner circle, which he, he actually was in that respect. He was very on good terms with a lot of members of Porfirio Diaz's inner circle. Uh, so he's also passing as along class lines, and I think he's even as he's being forced to go to the Jim Crow car, he is sort of invoking all of his um, class privilege and, and the ways that he hopes he'll sue them. Now I looked everywhere and he never, he never seems to have done this lawsuit. And I think the reason being that if you did do this lawsuit and you lost, <laughs> you mm-hmm. would prove for everyone to know that you actually were this African American that they suspected you to be. But um, so much better to just sort of put it out there and mm-hmm. um, hope that that dispels anything. I did notice after this that he started taking the uh, steamships between. There's a steamship that would go between uh, New York and then off to stop in Havana and then go on to Veracruz. And he used to do that. And I think that's because it would prevent him from having to deal with what happens in, in Texas when you cross the border. Right. Once he gets checked in that way, the strategy shifts, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. But again, and then, then he's able to go first class along the steamship. So he's, right. he's always very, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, he both reveals, I think, the, the, you know, the, the extreme rigidity of the Jim Crow system, but he also reveals its poorness, its poorness because there were also, he's very, he has this tremendous genius for figuring out what are the various cracks in the ways that he can actually figure out how to, um, evade some of these restrictions. So he said, okay, trains is problematic potentially, but steamship, you're not going to go through, you know, in, there's no segregation really in transportation in New York. There's no trans, no segregation in, in Veracruz. So he basically, you know, bypasses 
this whole question of going through the South and segregation mm. if he takes a steamship. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's now in New York. He ends up on Wall Street, like one of mm-hmm. these powerful, or at least he's in, he's operating in powerful circles. Yes. He's making friends with really big people. And yeah. he must have been a charismatic guy. He must have been um, somebody who could convince people of a lot of things. What tools was he sort of using beyond this performance or this this use of um, class privilege or this particular class identity? What other tools were at his disposal mm-hmm. to carry on the charade of, of being a wealthy, uh, elite Mexican man? I th- yeah, I think one of the things that just helps him is the general tenor of the time, which is to say that in the he moves up to New York in about the 1890s. So right as the, you know, the U.S. investment in Mexico under the Porfiriato is really gaining a lot of uh, velocity. And when you think about it, almost every aspect of the sort of booming consumer culture of uh, sort of increasingly uh, urban, modern U.S. society, it this during the Gilded Age depends in one way or the other on Mexico so that the automobile is just taking off. And so you need the rubber from Mexico and you need ultimately the petroleum from Mexico for your automobiles. Uh, electrification and the telephone are taking off. And a lot of that depends on copper wire. and The copper comes from Mexico. Uh, and even with the, with um, electrification, you have refrigeration. So ice cream takes off as a treat. And so, but if you want chocolate or vanilla ice cream, the chocolate and the mm-hmm. vanilla comes from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even just goofy things like you know, chewing, chewing gum, the chicle comes from Mexico. Right. And so there's this huge fascination among U.S. investors in Mexico uh, related to all of these these things. And there's this huge sort of rhetoric about the tropics is where all of the sort of wealth um, is being, at least the, the, the raw resources that are, are that the U.S. depends on come from the tropics and Mexico is seen, which is always funny to me because for me, Sonora's, which is like what I know best in Mexico, is such a dry, non-tropical state. <laughs> right. But Mexico is presented in the in the rhetoric of the time as this tropical place. And so one of the other things he's able to invoke beyond simply just dressing well and speaking Spanish and having this sort of Mexican-style mustache, um, and he used to give people sort of gifts of, you know, leather works and whatnot from mm. Mexico, which sort of all invoked Mexican imagery is that uh, Americans are just fascinated with Mexico as this land of opportunity. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, you'll, you'll see all these references in um, this magazine that they used to publish down on Wall Street, which was called Modern Mexico, which was sort of for investors. Mm-hmm. Mexico is the coming country and you invest in a Mexican rubber plantation and before you know it, when you'll be a incredibly wealthy. And so he's able to harness all of this fascination with Mexico and in essence, sell it to people so that he works in as a broker and, and he's uh, connecting people to Mexican investments, which, you know, they didn't understand the language and understand the culture and how to do these things in Mexico. And he did. Um, and so I, I think he's in many ways selling a, a certain fantasy of, of Mexico to Wall Street, and and Wall Street wants this so much. I mean, so mm-hmm. that they're they never question. This is one reason why they never question: Is he the Mexican that he says he is? Because we sure hope he is. Like I, this right. is the person who holds <laughs> the keys to the kingdom for me. So why would I argue with this? Mm-hmm. But I also think it suggests to me too. Like there's a lot. You know, if you think about it, if he's going to present himself as Latino, 
there's a lot of possible places he could have chosen. He right. could have said, I'm Guatemalan. I could have said, I'm or Cuban. Or Cuban, or he could have said, I'm from Argentina or right. whatever. But I think it, the reason that I think he didn't really play with any of those, except Cuba, which is also sort of having bit, yeah. um, uh, some of, there's some other interesting things going on there. But I think the reason why he adopted Mexico so much was, you know, in part because he'd grown up near Mexico and was comfortable with it, but in part because the tremendous space that Mexico occupied in the American imagination at this time, and he's able to harness that in a way that, you know, say you're from Panama or whatever, actually, I guess Panama doesn't exist all that much during this time, but some other Venezuela, whatever, it doesn't invoke things in the same way, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that Mexico really does for people. I mean, Mexico is the main, uh, the United States, it's the main trading partner during this time period is Mexico uh, and one of its main export markets. And so it's a very, very close relationship. It's really, it's only now with NAFTA that we've begun to reach the level of economic integration between the U.S. and Mexico that you saw before the Mexican Revolution. Um, and the, the interesting exception being, of course, in the pre-Mexican Revolution period, people could also move. Right. Freely, and now we live in this period where capital is allowed to move freely across borders. But people is a much harder situation. But I think William Ellis is from this moment when both capital and people are moving back and forth across the border, uh, and he's able to uh, figure out how that actually gives him new spaces to operate in. Right, because you also say of the Gilded Age that at this time the state isn't really surveilling people's paperwork as much as they do now. So passports, other documents, proving your identity, he's able to get away with passing as well because it just wasn't the same as it is today. Yeah, and I think there's really two reasons why uh, passing tails off. Uh, there's a great book that recently came out on, on racial passing by Alison Hobbs at Stanford. You, you may yeah, know. Alison. Yeah, yeah. and uh, she talks a lot about how with the rise of civil rights and the, the black power movement that people you know begin to reject see passing as a rejection of blackness and, and move away from it. And I think that's, that's, there's a, there's a lot to that argument. I think what I would layer on top of that is there's also a change in the power of the state that makes passing harder. So that during the Gilded Age, it's really interesting. You don't need a passport to go into the U.S. until 1914. So there's no, there's no passports. There's also, uh, most people don't have birth certificates. I mean, William Ellis, of course, didn't have a birth certificate being slave, but even a lot of people who were, who hadn't been born slaves didn't have birth certificates. Uh, there's no driver's licenses. So there's very little documentation uh, in terms of sort of that says who you are, right? The only way that you, you are who you say you are, basically you have to come out and persuade people that when I say I'm a Mexican or I say I'm whatever, that I'm believable, right? And that's really what, uh, was the essence of the Gilded Age. I think that's why the Gilded Age, for a lot of people, when you read the novels, there's a lot of these novels about coming to the city and being disoriented because you're in among all these people who you don't know uh, and you have no sense way of being able to trace who they are and who they, if they are who they say they are. Mm -hmm. And so all this, of course, has changed where now you, know, you have a social security number that follows you around and you have to have a passport to do a lot of things and driver's license, you know, that... Uh, and so the, the sort of documentation that the state's able to do of you and they're able to surveil your identity is much more um, complete now than it used to be. 
Uh, but I think what's interesting, again, about it as a borderland scholar is one of the first moments where they're really trying to surveil identity is actually at the border, so that there's all these questions when you cross the border. You had to state who you were even before you had a passport, and you had to persuade them that you were who you say that you were. So that, you know, there's all these famous stories about Chinese from Mexico trying to pass as Mexican to get into the U.S. or um, things like that. Uh, and so in some ways, I think the, the state surveillance power in, in lots of ways gets created first along the border and then we see it mm-hmm. spread throughout the rest of the country. Right. And what kept cracking me up throughout the book, actually, was that scandal follows this guy. Yes, yes. <laughs> and in his personal life, like, it follows him to, you know, I mean... There are some episodes where he's trying to make romantic connections yes. with various women and it does not go the way that he wants no. it to go. No. So I, I just thought, you know, this, this is how you're able to find his story is because he keeps on popping up in yes. court cases and trials and people having beef with him about yes. something that happened. Can you give us an example of like one little thing that maybe happened? Well, yeah, one of the ones that I like best is that when he first comes to New York, and I think this is indicative of the fact that everyone in New York is uh, really trying to reinvent themselves to a certain extent. So he first comes to New York, and he meets this um, beautiful white woman who uh, had just moved there from, I think it was Atlanta, somewhere down south, to be supposedly an actress or a musician or something. And so the whole time he starts to woo her, and I think he's, I, I think he's thinking he wants to have children, but if he's passing... He needs to be very careful about his choice of spouse because this is one of the, the fundamental questions that that pastors confront, which is to say, once you get if you marry, if the decision is, am I going to have children? If I have children, how can I make sure that they look like the phenotype that I'm claiming? And right. so, I think for him, one of his incentives uh, in trying to uh, marry a, a very fair white woman was to sort of make sure that his kids would be as fair as possible. So he's pursuing this woman who was least at the, in the rhetoric of the day was seen as this tremendously beautiful woman. And the whole time he doesn't realize that she's actually setting him up for a graft of sorts, which is to say that uh, she actually is secretly, although she's, she's saying that she's single and collecting presents from him like a fur coat. uh, She's actually secretly married and she's trying to set him up for a, uh, this con that they call the badger game, which is to say she'll lure him into some sort of, a compromising position, then her secret uh, husband will burst in and pretend to be her father or her brother or something and basically blackmail him. Uh, and so that, that at the very last minute, the trap doesn't get sprung on him. He, he just narrowly avoids it. But I love the idea that everyone is sort of wearing a mask and he's sort of, he's looking at them through a mask, but they're also looking back at him through a mask and you get a sense of how much, uh, in New York, which really was a city of immigrants at that time. I mean, in terms of both immigrants from over overseas, uh, but also a lot of people uh, like the African-American community, a lot of the African-American community in New York at this time is actually from the Upper South. And so they're all newcomers to uh, New York as well. So when you have all these newcomers thrown in amongst each other and they're trying to figure out how do we relate to one another, uh, are you really who you say you are or mm-hmm. not? Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening in the end in his personal life? Does he get married? He does get married, yes. He ends up getting married um, to a, well, so the, the, the marriage announcement that he circulates, it's in 1903, is that he's marrying this woman who is a, from a minor British noble family. 
um, named Maud Sherwood. And it turns out that uh, Maud is of English ancestry, but she didn't grow up in, you know, as a minor noble in Great Britain. She actually grew up uh, in the waterfront in uh, Jersey City. So she, <laughs> so she's in her own way engaging in, I don't know if you can call it passing or whatever, this other sort of, right. game, of game of masks, right? Because it, he, she was a, a stenographer, and so I'm guessing that he met her in some sort of office setting, uh, that he may have even hired her initially and then. Or at one of his court trials. Who knows what. <laughs> who knows but, where. <laughs> but certainly, um, the, the, I think it was a very sort of uh, pedestrian, banal encounter. Uh, but he circulated this newspaper report that they met on this estate in Great Britain. And, and uh, I guess she went along with it. But I, So I, I think that oh, even though he is sort of the passer or the, the shapeshifter par excellence, I mean, she's also engaged in a small component of this. Totally. It's very well. theatrical. Yes, it is really theatrical. Yeah. Um, it's very much... I mean, I think that's what's so fascinating about the story is it makes me think a lot about... I mean, everyone ultimately... Uh, plays out social roles. I think he's just playing out a very extreme version of this, in part because he's passing the, the color line, which is, of course, the great sort of divide in American life. Uh, and, and in part just because he's doing it to such an extreme level that makes it really uh, fascinating, I feel. Mm-hmm. And he, he's living his life at this, all of these moments of rupture and transition that I think you know, I was wondering to myself, if he had been born and lived and tried to be this person at any other time, what's the the shelf life for, for passing as that sort of person? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, for the purposes of the um, my story, though, I feel like his his life traces this arc that's almost perfect and that right. he's born yeah. in slavery. So I get to talk about slavery and then he dies after the, not to do anything spoilers here, but he dies after the Mexican revolution, which again, he didn't live to be 200. Right, yeah. Right. But, but, you know, but by dying right after the Mexican revolution, he dies fairly young, but that's sort of, that's the Mexican revolution is such a other point of rupture, right? right? I mean, if you think on one end, this is a point of rupture where the, the slave system, which had been in place for hundreds of years, all of a sudden just collapses. And the question is what's going to happen afterwards. And then uh, the other point of rupture around his death is the, uh, the Mexican revolution, which really what is Mexico going to be? What is its relationship with the United States going to be? And he's deeply involved in that question as well. And what's fascinating is he's bringing both of those questions together in terms of what is the status of African-Americans going to be and what is the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico going to be? And he's able to see both of those questions as being interrelated. Mm-hmm. And so how, you know, now that we are spoiling the story uh-huh. for you, he okay. does pass away. Yes, everyone does, um, unfortunately. Everyone, everyone does. That is a fact. Um, so how, where was he? Was he crossing a border again when that happened? What, what were the circumstances around his death? So he loses most of his um, fortune during the Mexican Revolution, um, not surprisingly. And because in some ways the Mexican Revolution is a response to the sort of tremendous involvement of the in uh, foreign investment, yeah, foreign yeah. investment in, mm-hmm. in Mexican economy, and so he goes down after the revolution to try to reclaim his fortune, and so he's down there, and uh, he's a pretty young man; he's about fifty-nine, um, and he's in increasingly bad health. And so, one of the things I think about is he's actually one of his final sort of 
acts of passing, as it were. He's really trying to protect everyone. He's this young, vigorous man while he's secretly he's writing home to his lawyer and to his sister and that he's feeling worse and worse. Uh, and then he dies of a heart attack uh, in, in Mexico City. And I, again, this is one of these things that's unprovable for a historian, but I have to believe that just the tremendous stress of his double, triple life must have something to do with the, the heart attack and dying so young. I would think so. I, I, yeah. I just feel like that. I mean, again, I'm not a doctor, but or I'm just a, I have a doctor in history. But <laughs> You're no, a type of doctor. Yeah, <laughs> not the right kind of doctor for these questions. But um, that that that's sort of my intuition that I think it was probably incredibly stressful dealing with this. I mean, it was probably incredibly stressful dealing being African American living in the kind of right. living in Texas, and I do talk earlier on in just the incredible violence of Reconstruction that he would have seen and live through that would have been all around him. But then I think also uh, he doing all of these kinds of masquerades that he had to do takes in a tremendous amount of, I'm sure, just sort of psychic energy to do. Did his wife and kids ever know what, who he really was? I think that's a very, that's a really interesting question now. So I'm pretty sure his wife did. Uh, When I interviewed the family, I, that's one of the things I asked them and, they said, well, she, the wife actually wrote letters and knew several of them. So let me back up one second to make this clear. William Ellis is really pretty much the only member of his immediate family who passes. His one nephew who kind of joins him on this journey. But all of his sisters and his brother uh, identify as African-American. They, just, they keep that. And do they stay in Texas? And they stay in Texas. And then okay. during the great migration of the 20s and 30s, they to Los Angeles, to South Central Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And so he keeps in touch with them. And uh, after he gets married, one of his sisters comes and stays with them for a a while. And uh, also he, uh, Maude, his wife, I have letters that she's written to uh, his his sisters. Uh, And so she clearly knew the rest of his family. Which is again what's really unique about him, which is you know often the the idea of passing is a sort of complete rupture and complete separation and cutting off from your your, your birth family, and he didn't do that at all, uh, which I think is one of the things that makes him so fascinating, and I think also one of the things that means that the phenomena that we call passing is really multi layered, and there's lots of different ways of doing this, and he's doing it. There were those people who would completely sunder all ties with the rest of their family and friends and you would never hear from them again. But he's engaged in something that I've, I, I end up calling in the book more like code shifting, which is to say that he's, there's moments when he seems to inhabit this Mexican identity. There's other moments where he still seems to inhabit sort of his African-American identity, mm-hmm. at least when he's related to his family and, and dealing with African-American politicians. Um, it must have been so fascinating to get to know the family. I mean, that's sort of where I wanted the last questions I wanted to ask you about the book are, were about process because it's not often that a historian gets enmeshed in a family that's still around, that's still uh-huh. living in, in a subject that people can still talk about and show you sources. You can actually get to know the people who are a part of that story. So how was it writing this book? when you had met members of the family, you actually brought members of the family together in a Mm -hmm. sort of family reunion across 
um, across borders. Mm -hmm. So how did you find the process of writing this story um, and still having or feeling some sort of relationship with or connection to the family? No, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, as I said to you earlier, the meeting the family was really the key to the project that once I met the family and they had photos, which I'd never seen of him, it was very hard even for a while to imagine what he looked like. And they had some personal letters, which again are the most revealing correspondence that I have of him because most of the other materials I have about him are just him in a certain pose. And so it's very hard to figure out what's, what's going on. And so I really, the connecting with the family was the the key part of it. Uh, And so at some point early on in the process, I think now I did the math, it was something like seven years ago. I, uh, I went and I, I, I talked to the family on the phone a couple times and emailed a lot. And, and then I, I went out to meet them in person. And I wanted to do the project. I thought I had read uh, Marnie Sandweiss's book, uh, Passing Strange. Passing Strange, right, yeah. On Clarence King, which is a, a wonderful book. And I thought, you know, if I can write a book that even approaches, you know, half as good as this book, it'll be a pretty interesting book. And in some ways, Marnie was, she really worked through a lot of the sources were very scarce and she was able to still do a, a great job. And I thought, I actually have a few more sources and places. So I feel like maybe I can really do this, even though I originally thought I, I hadn't been able to. And so I went out to ask the family their permission because I thought, you know, I don't legally need to get anyone's permission to write this history, but ethically, morally, I, I felt very much that I, it would be the right thing to do because it could be seen as family secrets that I would be revealing. And if they were going to be uncomfortable and unhappy with that, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want this. I wanted this history to be a, you know, a happy collaboration, not a tense struggle with the family. And so I went out and asked them, although I, I will admit that my heart was a little bit in my mouth because I, at this point I'd done a lot of research on them. <laughs> and I was like, boy, if they're like, no, 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 please don't write about them. I'll be yeah. like, I'm going to have to throw away several years of research. But, you know, better that than be making people incredibly unhappy with this project. So I spoke, there's three sisters, um, Joan, Susie, and Fanny, who are sort of the matriarchs of the extended family out in uh, California. So I was sitting out in their backyard and I said to them, I, you know, I think I have enough material here to write a book, but I really want to make sure that you're comfortable with me writing the book. And they said, oh, yes, actually, we'd like you to write the book because it would be great to have our family history recorded and we can share with our grandkids and exactly the sort of response I was hoping for. Right. Um, but, you know, we're all getting up there. I think they were all at this point in their mid to late 70s. And they were saying, can you write the book quickly so that we can be around to see the book out? No pressure. No pressure. It was, it was, <laughs> it was really in many ways worse than being back on the tenure track because I, <laughs> the family's lovely. I mean, I have to say one of the things, too, is that I, I feel very, very close to them. And it really, it's been, I couldn't have, I didn't know what family I would find at the end of this yeah. process, right? And they could have been incredibly awful, difficult people, but they're just the most um, lovely, warm, welcoming, delightful people. And I feel um, really um, so lucky just to have met them and, and to, have, to have them take me into their home and have, have them trust me with the story. Uh, but I did feel the responsibility then that I wanted to get this out so they could see it. Uh, and, and, you know, I think getting the book out in seven years for a historian is actually, as you 
know. That's pretty good, pretty right? Fast. That's pretty fast. Yeah. But I, 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 I wonder, I think perhaps there are moments when they wondered what the heck I was doing. Cause it does, it, you know, that from a non-academic perspective, it's a long time. To it can end. seem like a long yeah. time, but, uh, everyone's still in good health and was able to get the books. And I was really happy to be able to FedEx them books uh, as soon as it came yeah. out. I saw on Facebook, I think maybe a granddaughter had posted on Facebook. She was so happy to get yeah. the book in the yeah. mail and yeah, she yeah, was yeah. looking forward yeah. to reading it. So one of the things I told the, uh, uh, I told the family when I met them is they had lost track with the Mexican branch of the family that William Ellis, after he dies, his, his widow and, and children moved down to Mexico and they had lost track of one another. And so I told him, I told them, well, I think I was feeling pretty cocky at this point because I tracked them down. <laughs> um, no problem. I'll be able to track down this missing Mexican side of the family. But, you know, the Mexican census stuff is much, it's not digitized in the same way. Uh, some of it is, but not nearly as much as the U.S. one. So I was really having a terrible time with this. And years went by that I, I didn't, about mm. five years went by, I could not find the Mexican family. And then finally what I did, and this is the final layer of how this project would have been impossible in a sort of pre-web digital era, I created a blog about the project and I would blog about the family members and everything else. And finally, one of uh, someone who taught uh, at the Universidad de Puerto Rico contacted me and she said, I'm interested in this dancer in uh, in Mexico, whose name was Victoria Ellis. And that's what she said. I know about her life in Mexico, but I don't know anything about her life in the U.S. I said, well, I know about her life in the U.S. This is William <laughs> Ellis's young, his only daughter, who was about 12 or 13 when she moves to Mexico. And I said, well, I don't know anything about her, um, but I don't know anything about her life in Mexico. So we were able to connect this way. She was able to introduce me to a dance historian uh, named Patricia Olestia, who... Um, actually as a young girl had taken classes with Victoria Ellis. Wow. Victoria Ellis um, becomes a prominent early member of uh, some of the groups that are doing ballet folklorico, which is, I had naively thought had sort of always existed in Mexico, but it's very much actually quite new, new yeah. post-revolutionary art, mm -hmm. right? A kind of folk, you know, a folk thing that invokes certain Mexican traditions. Uh, and oddly enough, several Americans are involved in the creation of ballet folklorico. And Victoria Ellis is one of them, and she dances wow. in a lot of the Ciclo de Oro films with Maria Felix and all these people. Um, and so all of a sudden, I, I'm connected with her, and then I'm connected with her, her um, nephew, who would be William Ellis's grandson. And so once they, uh, I connected with him, then it was just the, the missing piece was putting the two halves of the family back together. Wow. Uh, because the, the family... The Mexican family knew that they had, uh, that the Ellis name came from the United States, that their grandfather, or in some cases, great-grandfather was American, but they never really knew much about his family. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, one of the things that seems to be clear is that his children had um, never told their children that their father was African-American. So they knew he was American, but they did not know he was African-American. Wow. So you were blowing all kinds of minds. I guess so. I mean, although one of the things that I think this is one of the points of the book that, you know, for, uh, for an American, if you find out, because we have the one drop rule, that if you find out if you have some African-American ancestry that could radically shift your sense of self, 
but in Mexico, because you're, everyone thinks about themselves as mestizo, mm-hmm. which is usually Indian, European, and Spanish, and yeah. Spanish. But, you know, it just means mixture. If you are mestizo, it's like you're more mestizo than you had thought, but it, it doesn't necessarily change your self-identity in quite the same way I think it would in the U.S. Um, and that's one of the things that the book is trying to point towards is the you know, after Reconstruction in the U.S. and after the French intervention in in Mexico, both these countries are really trying to re, you know, reestablish themselves as coherent nation states. And race is important in both projects, but it takes on really different valences in both places, right? The U.S. becomes obsessed with racial purity and trying to separate races out from one another. Mm-hmm. And Mexico sort of thinks a lot about mestizaje and mixing groups together, although in a sort of selective way that can also erase the presence, say, of Afro-Mexicanos, because the idea of mestizaje is really, it's presented as Indian, Spanish, Indian, European, uh, and not, you know, Chinese don't fit, Afro-Mexicanos don't really fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because it's, you know, in recent news and conversations that, you know, borderlands and Mexican historians are having is recognizing the history of Afro-Mexicans. And right. I think your book um, helps us do a little bit more of that work, but still so much to... Yeah, I think so. I mean, my sense of the... This is the, the very small point where I feel like maybe I'm contributing a little bit to Mexican historiography and that when I look at the... There is... I think you're entirely right. There's a big efflorescence of work on Afro-Mexicanos and a lot of it is in the colonial period or it's sort of modern-day uh, ethnographies and right. anthropologies of La Costa Chica or around Veracruz. And what's really the area that's... Um, not very well researched yet is the 19th century, uh, you know, after Mexican independence. And this is when William Ellis was operating. And, and, and he really, the moments that you do see debates in Mexico about um, blackness uh, really almost always are associated with something that William Ellis has set in motion. So there's several moments when he talks about trying to bring thousands of um, African-Americans to Mexico, for instance. And this sets off big debates in Mexico. Um, you know, in, certain, in certain respects, Mexico, I, I really do think, is quite conscious of structuring its racial system in, in relationship and opposition to what it sees as the, the extreme racism in the U.S. And so there's certain people say, well, yes, this is great. You know, we shouldn't practice the, um, you know, the same sort of discrimination that the U.S. does. There's other. There's another strain of thought in Mexico, which is that they're really trying to modernize a nation, sort of racially, and that they want to whiten the nation. So they're very much into trying to get white immigrants. So they love Italians and want Italian immigrants. Um, you know, uh, Catholics from from uh, Europe are great, but African Americans who are Protestant and black is not a group that necessarily everyone in Mexico is excited about as an and so these debates play themselves out in the, in the Senate. They play themselves out in newspapers. And they're all set in motion by William Ellis. Mm. And so you, can, you begin to get a sense of really how um, rich this topic potentially is through these glimpses that William Ellis gives us of this time period. But there's obviously a lot more work that needs to be done. Totally. And I think you make a great point at the beginning of the book by saying, you know, Latin Americanists and Americanists should talk to each other more. You right. know, because there's just so much... We can use to inform one another's studies when it comes to race, migration, identity, um, 
borderlands history and crossing, um, all of these different things, we should be bringing more fields together. And I think your book does it extremely well, and it's going to be attractive and useful to Latino historians, historians of race and immigration, um, Latin American and U.S. historians. I think um, the the lens of this person's life really allows us to have this kind of work that can be used in all different sorts of teaching contexts. So it's really generous of you. But it, it is in some ways a micro-history. I mean, it's just right. one person's life. And I, I think of it more as a micro-history than a biography because I I think this may not be correct, but I think of biographies as often trying to like access the inner mind and mm-hmm. personality of the mm-hmm. person. And I didn't have the documents and really the skill to do something like that. But he does allow us to think about putting together, I think, bringing fields in conversation that haven't been uh, in conversation before because he is crossing all these ethnic and, and uh, national borders. And uh, in that respect, I like to think uh, that my aspiration, at least, is that even though it's a micro-history, it opens up some very big macro sort of questions that um, would be good discussions. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I haven't completely answered all of them yet, but I think they open some very interesting discussions for us. Do they leave extra questions for you for future work? For future work? I mean, one thing that there's a lot of people are beginning to research, uh, and I just hint at it in this book, but uh, one of the parts I liked writing a lot was in the beginning was just all the uh, escaped slaves who are running to Mexico. And so that, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you saw Django by um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino, which is the, the opening scene is actually set in Texas and he, has the after the uh, I forget the name of the guy he takes you know, he frees Django and then he tells the rest of the slaves follow the star and go north to uh, freedom but I was thinking no you know actually if they're in Texas they would have gone south <laughs> right <laughs> uh, and one of the big questions actually is there's something on the order of, I mean it's hard to get an exact count but probably four or five thousand slaves at least who go um, into uh, northern Mexico I mean, you really don't know what happens to them right they just seem to get and disappear from all of the historical records. And there's a couple um, really smart grad students and people who are beginning to do some work on that. But I always felt like that's just one obvious area where there's a lot of interesting research to be done mm-hmm. um, that has yet to really uh, bear fruit as much as it could or should. Right. So this project is not completely a closed thing for you. No. It might spark something. No. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't figured out what I'm going to write next in part yeah. because I had to write this book uh, in a little bit of a, a white fury to get it <laughs> out so that um, I could share it with the family. So I'm, I'm still thinking about it, but I certainly think whatever I do next will probably be some sort of borderlands type project. Well, I can't wait. Well, I'll give you some more time to do it, though. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I have really enjoyed this conversation with Carl Jacoby. Again, the book, the title of his book is called The Strange Career of William Ellis, the Texas slave who became a Mexican millionaire, coming out with Norton um, this year. So congratulations, Carl. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me.